And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Uh, you are now tuned into anything potable, the most honorable, the most audible. Hold the applause, like Paul Pierce when he was fresh out the hospital, like Antoine when he shimmied after shots went through. So tell me why you mad even? Your team gonna be sad leaving after matching up with Brad Stevens. Each season, champion contenders. We drop twice a week like you trying to guard Kemba. <laughs> your team whack and your players whacker. I got the inside scoop after hanging up with Jay and Packer. Okay, we about chips here. I'm talking about this year, band of 12 plus 6 here. Fast PP. Top rookie, I'm saying it now. Ain't playing around with Tatum. Fournier. Brown, we off the charts, but you gotta play it market smart. Close out, cause he pulling up from Harvard Yard. Gang green, it's no other way. So tune in to the pod if you plan on staying up to date. You heard? <laughs> AJ, I, I see you, player. She. Welcome to the Boston Celtics podcast here on the Athletic Podcast Network. I'm your host, Sam Jam Packard, professional sports fan, and I am joined, as always, by the kid, the god, the legend, Celtics beat reporter for The Athletic, Jay King, ladies and gentlemen, and we are coming to you in which has been a relatively quiet week for the Celtics in terms of their offseason. I mean, we got week one, they traded Kemba for Horford. Week two, uh, they uh, picked up or hired Ime Udoka to be their new head coach. Really, the only thing that's happened this week is that they introduced Ime to be the uh, coach, and they had their opening press conference. Jay, you were there. You were watching. I guess, what was your biggest takeaway um, from that press conference, and uh, how do you think the Ime era has gotten off to a good start? That was a bad question. I'm sorry. But you know what to do. Just <laughs> I think uh... – the one thing I've gotten from both that press conference and talking to people around the league and people from Udoka's past, he kind of seems a lot like Brad Stevens, just a tougher version. Like, the more I talk to people about him, the more his even-keeled nature and his steadiness and his intelligence come up. And you can kind of see the shades of Brad. And he's just like a... Uh, so I, I think that's one of the things that stood out. Another thing that stood out from that press conference is he continuously referred to Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown as the two pillars. And so, it, and that was after Brad kind of after the season ended came out and said, we're, and he became the president of basketball operations came out and said, we're going to make, you know, we're going to try, try to make decisions to maximize our wings so basically, like the Celtics have have handed over the franchise sort of to Tatum and Brown and decided that they need to do what's best to maximize those guys. And I think that's actually pretty important because um, because 
they haven't really done that yet. Like it, it's it's obviously the the obvious choice, right? Like of course you give you make decisions based on Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. But to this point, the Celtics really haven't had the opportunity to do that because first, there, you know, Kyrie and Al Horford were there. And then Kemba Walker came. And and Kemba was an all-star. And he, he was really, when he first got to Boston, the guy. And so the evolution of straddling two separate timelines versus now it's just the Tatum and Brown timeline, I think is, is very important. This feels like the start, like the def- like start of like this is we're going all in on Jalen and Jason, like we're going to build around them, and I thought that was like an interest. Like he kept on referring to them as the pillars, the pillars. It's like what they build their franchise around, and so I thought that was um, just interesting. The other thing that stood out is like it seems like Ime is going to be a bit of a hard ass and kind of prides himself on being a hard ass, and is like the players want me to hold them accountable and be. Um, just kind of in their, I don't know if it's going to be in their faces because he seemed like a very calm dude, but uh, Jay King just disappeared on live television here. So I'm going to keep talking about my impressions, but it was interesting to, um, to see just like how he, uh, I don't know, he was just willing to um, one, make fun of Brad Stevens during the meeting, which I thought was great calling out his terrible offense. That was hilarious. But it seems like he's like very much like these players want um someone to hold them accountable and it's like kind of i don't know if it's like throwing brad under the bus but it's like definitely like he prides himself on being a tough uh kind of just like a tough son of a bitch and that's like when you read all the articles about him and things like that that's like seemed like a very strong part of his personality yeah i don't think that's throwing brad under the bus at all because i think brad wanted udoka (laughs) because on that front he is going to be different from brad and and so i think like, like Brad, to, to me, like, if I was going to hire the guy who replaced me, I'd want someone who did all this stuff I do, right? Like, or the, all the stuff I do well, and then was able to improve on all the stuff I do very poorly, which there's a long list of things. So for Brad, I, I think, I think he realized that, you know, if, if he was, and this is just my theory, I haven't really heard this from Brad or, or anybody with the Celtics or anything like that. Um, but like, I feel like after this past season, especially Brad realized, you know what? My message could get further if I was a little tougher, if I had playing experience to connect with players. And so I, I think those two things were important to him. And he didn't want to get someone who deviated from his values and what he thinks about the game of basketball and, you know, Udoka, by all accounts, is a hard worker, someone who's super even keeled, like is not going to be someone who gets super hyped after w- regular season wins or super down after a blowout loss. But I also think Brad wanted to find someone who would have a different type of voice than he did. And I, I think, you know, kind of balancing, keeping what Brad considered his own strengths and, and what he considered and then improving what he considered his weaknesses I do feel like that was really important to him. And, and I feel like it's only natural, right? Like if, if you were going to hire someone to do, to, to do your job as a host of anything is potable, you'd probably want someone who's extremely funny. Like you are, who's ah. extre- 
who's extremely handsome like you are. Who, Two compliments from the kid. Keep going. Who's extremely intelligent like you are. <laughs> um, and then you'd probably want to find someone who, like, knows what, what's actually going on in basketball, like, unlike you. Yeah. Um, you'd want someone who, no, I'm kidding, <laughs> but, but like, you know what I mean? Like it, it only makes sense and it's very rare for someone to hire his own successor. So, but it only makes sense that he wanted someone with like his strengths and who does some of his weaknesses a little better. And I, I think Udoka kind of, at least Brad sees him as that, that that's, that's my theory. Yeah. And I, I think it like, it just the idea that Brad's voice I don't think he's like lost – like the whole lost the locker room talk doesn't make any sense to me, but it's like it can make sense if it runs stale. Like I think Brad's specialty early on in his Celtics tenure was like maximizing players and like getting them to like, I don't know, getting, getting Evan Turner that giant contract or like getting these players to maximize um, all of their talents and like kind of overachieving. But eventually yeah, when you a have – a bunch the, of players played their best basketball under him, especially early on. But he seemed to like specialize with like getting these guys who kind of um, to maximize what, uh, their potential. But they never really had like elite star talent. And I can see where if you are a star like Jason Tatum or uh, um, Jalen Brown, like you need to be coached a little bit differently. Like you maybe not need to you still need to maximize your potential. But you're like you're already there. You're already at that star level. Brad is not helping you get your next contract. You're already established. And it's like. If Brad comes in and is just like kind of a hard ass, I can understand if like a 23 year old who's about to get a max deal, it just like doesn't really, it falls on deaf ears. And it's just like, especially if he's not a former player, where it's just like, what do you like really know about like, and I, I like, I feel like I'm oversimplifying it because obviously I think they like respect Brad Stevens' uh, basketball mind. But I like, I think it like, if someone has gone through the NBA, you're much more willing as a player to kind of hear their kind of criticism and critiques because you know that they've gone through it too. And so I think that like, it brings us to our first question is from Don, Don got him. I think we already addressed this, but I just wanted to give him the credit. It's like, I don't think we really should be concerned about like, uh, Ime lighting a fire under the team. How many like times did we hear that Brad was not enough, like of a disciplinarian or like didn't fire the team up enough. I think it's like kind of the thing that this team needs in terms of, intensity, physicality, all of those things that maybe were lacking uh, last season. I think like that's the type of uh, kind of uh, improvement that this team needs to make heading into next season. Yeah. And I think, I do think there's something to the sense that um, especially like if you look at NBA history, sometimes when teams let go of a coach, they try to hire someone who's like 180 degrees opposite. And, and I think you can go very wrong there where you go from like, like someone who's, you know, kind of a player's coach to someone who's like going to be totally on your ass, just screaming at you all the time, playing you 40 something minutes and yelling about how you suck in the press. And I don't think that the Celtics did that at all. I, I think w what Brad did intelligently and and who knows udoka has a lot to prove he hasn't coached a single game i have very little idea of whether he'll be a supremely successful head coach but from what you hear about him um i, I do think brad like like really valued the intelligence the hard working the spurs experience learning 
culture under Greg Popovich, that's that's a master's course. You know, you you take a, a master's class from Greg Popovich in in culture, and so Udoga has a lot of experience. And then, so I I think like all of that stuff is is very far from what you think when you think of light a fire under a team guy. Like he won't always be screaming at guys. He's going to build relationships with guys. He's going to have that warmer side to him that you don't necessarily get with a lot of yelling coaches. Um, and so, yeah, I think he's going to be tougher than Brad. I think he's going to be a little firmer maybe with, with some of his messages, but it's not like he's going to be like Jim Boylan or something, just, just hooting and hollering on the sidelines. And, he's not going to take it back to the punch 1950s. card system. <laughs> yeah, no, like that, that's not going to be him. He very much sounds like a, a modern coach. Um, and he puts who, such an emphasis on like relationship building, like and like, especially with the young guys and things like that. That that was like another thing to take away from what was a pretty like generic intro press conference. But I thought it was like he one has like existing relationships with like the the pillars as he calls them, but puts like a huge emphasis. I had no idea he was so close to Peyton Pritchard. Um, and apparently has known him for Peyton a while. Peyton Pritchard was just a star in Portland, man. Everyone knew Peyton Pritchard in Portland. Apparently, I mean, yeah, he's the he's the goat uh, of Portland and uh, just an Oregon legend. But it seems like, um, like he has all. It's just like you're right. It's just like Brad, but a little bit meaner. And so it's like if you were to replace me, it would be like me. But a little bit smarter, and like like exactly what you were uh, you would be looking for in a head coach. So um, I think it's a uh, everything is positive right now. Of course, I'm just like a blind optimist, and like there's no reason to think things are going to go wrong. Um, the other thing that stood out to me from that press conference was uh, Udoka didn't give the um, I guess thorough endorsement of the Celtics staff. He basically said a lot of guys are out there. I have a lot of relationships. Um, and that kind of, I think it brings us to our next question where uh, this is from Ben Anderson. What assistance like, do you see coming in? Hard, Will Hardy and Damon Stoudemire have been rumored. Um, I guess I'm curious what you think happens to the kind of current coaches on the roster and what are your thoughts on um, Hardy and Stoudemire? The last I spoke to the current coaches, they're, they were just kind of still waiting to hear what's going on. Um, and I haven't talked to any of them in a couple of days, so that, that could be different now. Um, with Hardy, you hear a lot of great things about Hardy. He uh, he beat my college team by 31 points back in, cat boy. back in 2006 when I was a freshman. I played seven minutes in that game, had one point. Or one rebound, one assist, zero points. You went back and looked at the box scores and he I, was rumored? <laughs> I did because – because I, I actually – I didn't remember playing against him, but I knew he went to Williams around that time, and I was just wondering if he was on that team that we played. They beat us by 31. Um, well, what was Will Hardy's stat line? He, oh, classic he, J. King just looked at his own stats, didn't look at the no, score. No, I, I, no, classic J. King, I remembered my own stats, but I, I looked for his stats. He played like like 10 or 15 minutes, I think. Um, but he, he then played on a Williams team that, that was – much better than that one finished, I think second in the country uh, lost in the national championship game, but he's supposed like, he's supposed to be one of the, the rising stars across the NBA from, from when you talk to people. Uh, I believe he's 33 years old. 
has already gotten interest for head coaching positions across the league. He's spent 10 years on the Spurs staff. And so that's a big hire. Like that is a very good hire Um, from, from his reputation. Like that dude can really, really coach and, and he should be seen as like a, a major league hire. Um, So I think, I think that should be a, a very big one. Well, he sounds um, like the lead assistant type. Like he has the resume to kind of, if he's getting head coaching interviews, like he's going to come in and be a top person. So I like would be surprised. This is me based on nothing because uh, everyone knows how, unless it's um, news about Charlotte Hornets, I have no inside sources. Um, like I would be surprised if Jay Laranega like was still here just because he's also gotten head coach interviews. And so if they're going to bring in another kind of like top lead assistants, maybe you could have two like an offensive defense type thing. But um, it just seems like if also bringing in Damon Stoudemire, like it makes sense that if you're going to turn the franchise over to a new coach, like you're going to give that coach uh, the opportunity like to bring in his own guys. If you're trying to change the voice of the locker room, you're trying to like, kind of like bring in a different vibe. It doesn't necessarily make sense to have all the same assistant coaches. And the Celtics have a lot of like solid uh, assistant coaches. I just like when you have a regime change like this, I think it just makes more sense to bring in entirely new blood just because Yudoka uh, is going to want to do things his way. And like, it's kind of weird to have guys who are hanging on from the past. See, I, I don't necessarily agree with that fully. Um, and I think when you, when, franchises change head coaches there are a lot of times that assistants do stay when brad came in he kept a few assistants well laranega's um, from the doc era right yeah and so is jamie young and and both those guys are are good coaches both those guys would be helpful if if udoka decided to keep them around um so i i think and nba staffs are just so big like Udoka could hire three or four guys and still have room for for other guys, whether it's some of the video coordinators, whether it's some of the assistant coaches, whether it's whatever. And then the other piece of it is that Brad is still in charge. And Brad is the president of basketball operations. And obviously, I I assume he intends to give Udoka a whole lot of control over his staff because Brad knows what it's like being a head coach. Um but like Brad's word probably matters if he says this guy would be worth keeping around. Um, this guy we we think would make a very big impact if, if you do keep him on the staff. Like that word should matter. So yeah, I don't I don't know what what they'll do to fill out the rest of the staff. I thought it was notable that Udoka kind of said, you know, I don't necessarily need uh, an experienced staff i'd rather have an an energetic staff that wasn't a direct quote but something like that and i think that first of all spoke to his confidence i think you know like that he he's not going to be out necessarily looking for someone who's like a a mike d'antoni type when steve nash got hired by the nets you know like someone with head coaching experience, someone with who's been in the league for 30 years or whatever, like like when Brad Stevens hired Ron Adams as his top assistant his first year. Um, Udoka's been in the league for – he's been around the league for a long time. He's coached for, for a while. He played before that. He's basically been around NBA basketball since 2002, 2003, whatever. 
uh, with a couple of years overseas mixed in. So he doesn't need necessarily the same guy underneath him that even if Steve Nash would, because Steve Nash had never coached before. Like he'd been around the NBA, but he, he, he didn't have coaching experience, whereas Udoka has that coaching experience. So I, I thought that spoke to his confidence that he can handle the job. And then um, I also thought it, it kind of gave a hint into kind of what he feels the, the team needs, which is energy and, and enthusiasm and stuff like that. So we'll see. We'll see who he hires. We'll see how the, the staff rounds out. Um, but I think the Hardy hire, especially, like, that got rave reviews from a lot around the league. A lot of people see him as a bright, bright dude with a big, big future. I think the other big piece, not big piece of news, obviously there's not a lot of news this week, but another piece of news was Wick Grosbeck going on Sports Talk Radio. Um, this question's from Philip Chenery. He said he expects a lot of moves over the next month. And what extent I think it's do you Philip Chenery. Philip, Sh- Philip Chenery. Never, whatever it is, Wick said he expects Philip a lot Tionary. of moves. Philip Tionari. I'm By the way, for, for those just listening to the podcast, we are reading off a screen and we can't <laughs> we can't read. Uh, so I guess we that's a little bit of an issue. Takes, but what the hell is Wick talking about? Like, I just don't – maybe I'm dumb, but we've established that early in the podcast. Do the Celtics have that much flexibility to make a lot of moves uh, this offseason? I feel like they're pretty – constrained by the cap they don't like they it feels like they can re-sign Fournier and then they probably have a mid-level exception of sorts but beyond that I'm really kind of confused to see like or to figure out what the a lot of moves Wick's talking about well if you listen to his full quote he kind of backtracked a little bit or at least didn't make it seem like something is for certain going to happen he he and I'm 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 quoting this from from Jared Weiss's story on, on the remarks. He said, "I'm prepared for it. Let's put it that way. I'm not saying this roster, in my view, has to change because of X, Y, and Z. I'm saying we have a new team president of basketball. We have a new coach. They're going to spend July figuring out who they want to have and what the roster is going to look like. I just want us to get farther, and it could be these guys, or there could be changes. So it wasn't like he was out there. We got huge changes coming, fireworks, guys, which is what he said. I think." five or six years ago and people kind of clung to that one and that that did not happen to, to, did not happen at least that off season um so yeah i i don't think there's necessarily any huge change coming but i do think brad was pretty open last year about how he didn't think the roster was good enough and if they keep fournier they've traded kemba then they can at least convince themselves that maybe it fits better around Jason Tatum. Maybe it fits better around Jalen Brown. Um, But I I do think that they're, they don't look at this roster right now and think this is a finished product. This is a team that that's ready to be, you know, title favorites or anything like that. So they, they know they have a lot of work to do. I don't know whether, you know, major changes will come this off season. But I also think like you, you could look around the league and think if the Celtics had been in like the four or five matchup instead of getting the nets in the first round. And like, Who knows? If, I mean, they, if, could, 
if Jalen was healthy, like I, no one saw the Hawks going this far. This is wild. Like this playoffs has been absolutely insane. This has been a, a trash playoffs in terms of injuries and the amount of talent that is currently, or that was in the conference finals, the amount of healthy talent at least. So yeah, uh, but, but I, I don't think they're under any belief that this team is, is ready right now. And I do think over the next couple of years, there will be some significant changes as they try to build the right type of roster around Tatum and Brown to get them to to feel comfortable with the organization long term. And, and that's what it's going to take to keep these guys, you know, probably beyond their next contracts or in Jalen's case, his current contract. I guess Tatum's is starting in a few weeks or whatever it is. Um so there will be, I suspect, major changes, at least to the supporting cast. They will go after whatever stars if they can. Um, but, like, for now, I'm not sure there will be enormous changes this offseason. I think the, the Kemba deal gave them some financial flexibility, got rid of, obviously, a, a, a very good player still, um, and kind of changed the con, con- – the, texture of the roster and to a place where I, I think they think they're in better position now, but still have moves to do to, to solidify the supporting cast. That brings us to, I think it's going to be part of the podcasts for the rest of the summer, but uh, random speculation about what they're going to do with the roster. Um, there's a lot of like, I'm not going to answer that. We got a bunch of questions. Like who do you think is going to make the jump between Peyton Pritchard, Romeo Langford, Aaron Neesmith, I have no idea. And so I'm just not going to entertain that question. I don't know how I'm going to gain any more information there. And so I'll focus on some more transactional ones. This one's from Sean RGCY. No, just Sean RGC. I should have put a space there. Why does every national reporter slash pundit think uh, the Celtics need a point guard when they definitely need more wing depth? Jay, I've been kind of curious about this too. It feels like they made the Kemba trade and everyone was like, well, they got to go out and get a backup, like another point guard, another point guard, or they got to get a starting point guard. It feels like to me the natural shift is like Marcus Smart's your starting point guard, Peyton Pritchard's your backup point guard. Sure, I think you could use a third guard. We know Brad loves three guards. Like bring in someone on a veteran uh, minimum contract, maybe a Reggie Jackson campaign type, uh, but I definitely avoid the Jeff Teague types. But that doesn't seem like the biggest need in this roster. I think this is something that you've been talking about for a while. It feels like a, a power forward with some size is like the the biggest hole right now in terms of how the roster is currently constructed. Yeah, I think people are probably looking at they lost Kemba Walker. They did not get another point guard in that trade. Um, so – and I also think they could use at least one more ball handler. It doesn't have to be a starter, though. Marcus Smart can definitely handle the starting point guard position. I do think Jason Tatum will have stretches where he's just the team's point guard this year, where he's the primary ball handler. And I think that can work. I actually think the wing depth is in a better position now, assuming they keep Fournier. Like If you go into the next season and – either Fournier is in the starting lineup and you've got Neesmith and, and Lankford coming off the bench. Like you feel a little better. Cause at least you know that Neesmith can handle some minutes. At least you know that 
Lankford can hold his own defensively. Like, Lankford missed more than half of last season. Neesmith didn't even play for more than half of last season. So that's kind of like found money. Uh, no matter no matter what they give you, it's, it's found money. Um, and I do think those guys are probably poised for at least a little bit of development, especially, you know. But who do you think's be, more ready to make the leap between Romeo and Neesmith? I just think Neesmith was more ready last year. So I think he's probably more ready or he, he's in better shape to be more ready to make the leap. So my bet would be on Neesmith. I also think his shooting could be very important to, to open up space for the, the primary creators on the team. So that, that would be my pick of him and Langford. Um, but if you can get like a power, if you could get a power forward to start and it's Marcus Smart, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, power forward X, and Robert Williams, and then your bench is Fournier, Neesmith, Lankford, Al Horford, and Pritchard. Now it's like, okay, that's a 10-man rotation that you can rock with. You know who you didn't mention there, which is music to my ears, Tristan Thompson. And uh, is there any, like, speculation? Like, he makes the most sense to me as someone, like, who you would trade. He has an expiring contract to try and get someone because – I don't really understand the situation right now in terms of free agency. What do they, if, assuming they re-sign Fournier, do they only have like a mid-level left or like have to sign guys to the veteran minimum? Like who, like it would be great if they could go out and get a, a solid uh, like backup ball handler, but like do they, I don't just don't think the cap mechanics work for them to get anyone other than that veteran minimum. So maybe trading Tristan Thompson uh, makes more sense, but like to like, just explain – I clearly am the stupid one on this. Like, what is their actual opportunity to sign a free agent right now, assuming, like, first that they keep Tristan Thompson? Yeah, so they, they'll have the taxpayer mid-level exception, um, which will be – I think it's like $5.7 million or so. Would, you know you know who's an unrestricted free agent? Ish Smith. Ooh. Ish Smith for the taxpayer mid-level. I'm just looking at the available guards right now. Uh, Frankie Smokes, TJ McConnell, and uh, Peyton Pritchard as the backup uh, court. Like, there are some guards out there who I think fill that role, but they pretty much, like, you would want to, like, spend that $5 million on one player. Uh, and so it's, like, going to be, like, the kind of level of, like, just random vet like that rather than, like, I like people have been talking on about Lonzo Ball. There's no chance the Celtics sign Lonzo Ball. That just doesn't make any sense. Um, but, I don't know, what do you think maybe – just looked at this, Brad Wanamaker, really uh, make the bench a little sturdier. Um, but, yeah, like what do you think the chances are that they can get off Tristan Thompson's uh, contract? And is there any concern if you do trade Tristan Thompson that leaves you kind of weak at your center depth? Yeah, I, I do think there would be concern there because you look at Robert Williams, he's never played more than 52 games in a single season. Al Horford is 35 years old already with obviously a, a lot of miles over his career. I don't think you can trust either of those guys to be 82 game players next year or, or maybe even close to it. Although Horford has been durable. So having a good third big man is pretty important. Like you, you need someone you can trust in that spot. Now it could be Grant Williams. 
You know, it could be somebody like that. It doesn't have to be Tristan Thompson. It doesn't have to be a regular traditional center. Um, but you need someone to trust in minutes on the nights that, that those guys aren't available. And so keeping Tristan Thompson may not be the worst thing, but I also think because paying your third big man $10 million in a season just isn't great. And because the Celtics could use another ball handler, another shooter, whatever, that I think, you know, they'll at least explore the market for him. I don't think his contract has much value, if any. And and so that could make it tough to trade um, or at least get value back for him. But I think that, you know, that if they're smart, they'll be – looking to to shop their third big and see if there are any any interested teams see if they can flip him somehow for somebody who who might make their roster fit a little better than it does right now with with him as the third center and and making 10 million dollars a year i mean I, i think it's definitely something they explore um but i think it's interesting like i don't think you're gonna get much value back for tristan thompson the thing that's like I think worth a discussion, and this was uh, brought up by Worm21. Um, why is Rob Williams never mentioned as a trade asset instead of Jalen or Smart? I think it's an interesting question. I don't think – I mean, I think people talk about the huge transactions. Like, I saw Dame is available, and they're like, trade Jalen, trade Smart. Like, I don't think the Celtics are going to do, like, a huge blockbuster trade like that. I don't know. Brad has surprised me a little bit over the last couple of weeks, so it might be coming. But, like – I love Rob Williams. I love his vertical spacing. I think he adds a lot to this team, but because his one, he's extension eligible now. And like, um, you just don't know what you're going to get from him. He has value. He has upside. If you're really trying to make an impact on this roster and get value back and add talent to build around Jason and Jalen, he's the one who makes the most sense in terms of outgoing um, players. And so like, I think it's the same reason why they had to trade, Tice rather than Tristan Thompson at the deadline is because people wanted like Tice and he had a cheaper contract. Like people are going to want Robert Williams. If you're going to get someone back, it makes more sense to me that like you're going to have to like actually part with someone valuable. And so I don't know, like this is also going to be on the, uh, the endless list of things we talk about, but like with the time Lord extension, what is it going to happen? Um, or do you think they like at all entertain the idea of uh, the seeing what his value is on the trade market? Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I, I think it definitely makes sense to to see what's out there, see what you can get, see what his value is on the trade market because, I mean, really, you don't know what you're going to get from Robert Williams. And he, he's a real wild card right now because when he plays well, he can be great. But he hasn't been available very often. His body is obviously iffy. He's, he's had hip issues. He's had, you know, just a, a long list of injuries after entering the league with with health concerns. So I think you you don't know what you're going to get from him, and that that's why you know if you can get something good for him, some different form of talent, you you maybe think about it. But I also think of any player on the Celtics roster. He's the one who has the highest ceiling alongside Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. And if he pans out and if he 
is able to get his health under control, and if he is able to stay on the court and continue to develop, then he could be a franchise changer. He could be the third piece that they really need and the third piece who could be around for a long time and fit next to Brown and Tatum and help lift that team the entire time they're in Boston. And so I think if the Celtics do consider moving on from him, they should be very careful about it because he is obviously their highest upside guy after Tatum and Brown. And it makes the timing of his extension very interesting because he clearly comes into next year as the starter, but they have to make that decision about the extension now, or it's like next does he, year. Does he? I would think so. I think like he, I mean, Al Horford's good. I have a t-shirt that expresses that exact sentiment, uh, but may, like, I think it would be in, like, I think he had pretty much earned the starting role last year before he Against got Tristan Thompson. Hurt. Yes, he did. That's true, but I like I still think if you're even if you're Al, I think you defer. Like the team goes as far; he's the ceiling raiser. The team goes as far. Like I wouldn't be surprised if their starting lineup, and they they went back to double bigs and did uh, Al Horford's their starting power forward. But I think like it is the time. It's like the make it or break it year for Robert Williams. He's going to have as close to a full offseason as possible. I think he's going to like start the with the starting role. Like he's at least going to get. 20 to 25 minutes a night. And so it's the make it or break it year. And like, you would much rather be in the position where you like want to give him the extension or the hometown. Like the point of the extension now is you get him for like a little bit of a discount that he's going to get on the open market. And so like, he's going to have this prove it year where it's just interesting where like, I don't like, do you just wait for him to prove it this year in that kind of larger role? I think that's probably what they'll end up doing just because it's, it's hard to like lock in for that. Um, long-term deal when you just don't know what his health is going to be moving forward. Yeah, that, that should be an inter- interesting discussion because his peak is very high. Like, his peak is extremely high. Um, if I were the Celtics, unless you can get him on a very team-friendly deal, I'd probably want to make him prove it because if he goes out and has an all-star caliber year or whatever and – proves that he can stay on the court for 65 to 70 games at least and proves he can stay healthy, then you'd be glad to pay him whatever. Like, it wouldn't be perfect to pay him a huge deal, but but if, if he can stay on the court and continue his development... If he earns his money, he earns his money, you just pay him. Exactly. And whereas if it goes the other way, if, if he is injured again, if he can't play much, if, God forbid, he has, like, a more serious injury than the turf toe and the, the lingering hip stuff, then, then you won't have the, the hindrance of paying this guy a lot of money for the next four years when he hasn't ever proven that he can be like a real centerpiece and stay on the court for you. So I don't know. It, it's a, it's a very, I guess not too, too complicated discussion, but it's not like a cut and dry extension case whereas i think you know like like with jalen and and jason tatum like it was pretty clear those guys were going to be worth a lot of money and it was pretty clear like the Celtics knew they were going to be worth a lot of money and with robert williams like i think he could be worth a lot of money um but because of his history with health issues and and not being able to stay on the court 
like there's a chance that he doesn't really live up to that if he does sign an extension. I got to give a quick shout out to Seabart. Uh, Seabart has been um, a very loyal uh, watcher and commenter, and all he does in the comments is hate, 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 and I love that energy. That's what this podcast is built on. Um, is just hating on people. He asks if Jay's wearing a backwards hat or just has a real bad haircut. No, the kid's got wonderful locks. Yeah, I got beautiful hair. You you probably can't tell right now, but I I, I have some some gorgeous hair. Um, the kid comes from the barber and he like every he walks into the media room and everyone looks and he says, "What's up, fuckers?" And everyone goes, "Oh, the kid. We wish we could be him." And so I, but I just want to give Seabart. That is not exactly how I I was being very generous in my Although I do say what's up, motherfuckers. That is my greeting. I just wanted to give Seabart for uh, some, because he's been here ever since we started going to YouTube. He's been in the comments. Uh, First, he's coming at my neck. Then he's coming at Jay's neck. Very much encourage participation, even if it's uh, negative, as long as you're funny. uh, Especially if it's negative. Especially if it's negative, it's going to be brought up. But especially if it's funny, we will shout you out. Um, we have some ridiculous questions that I just don't know. Like someone, uh, adjectivo1977 thinks Jason Tatum nickname should be Ace because it's a pass uh, with Ace and Deuce. And Jay, I know you love nickname discussion. Uh, so uh, what do you think about that idea? <laughs> You're forward. You, you have a much more positive reaction than I thought you were going to have. So here, here's the thing. At first thought, I was like, "No, Ace Ace cannot be the nickname." But then, then you, I saw the Deuce component, and that changes things. You know, if you start calling him Ace, Ace Tatum, Ace Tatum could never lose. There is no <laughs> way Ace Tatum is losing a playoff game. You can't convince me he does. He would need to change his number to number one, though, for him to be Ace Tatum. Like, I feel like that's the only like it has to go with it. I actually had a I friend. Think number in, one's retired by the Celtics, isn't it? I mean, I'm sure it is. Every number's retired by the Celtics. Like, yeah. I don't, I don't remember who specifically number one is, but uh, that feels like, of course, it is. Uh, Ace, I fr- I'm telling you, if you have the name Ace Tatum, there's no way you you lose to the Heat in six games. Let's put it that way. I mean, Ace Tatum puts up 50 points on the net. Like, it's a strong name. Ace is a very strong name. I'm, I'm all for it. As someone who's been trying, to, like. A long proponent of pushing nicknames. I think, like, if you got it, you got to run with it um, and see if the people like it. And so I'm all for it. I, I think Ace is a very strong name. The thing that is funny to me about Ace is that I had a friend in high school, shout out to Sean McGann, who just uh, tried to nickname himself Ace. He just came in one day and was like, I'm Ace now. Call me Ace. And that never works. And not one person, <laughs> not one person ever called him Ace. Uh, Hold on. This guy just tried to call himself. He walked into school one day and said, He just declared that he's ace. He was ace. He didn't want to be Sean. He was ace now. It didn't stick, but if I saw him today, I'd call him ace. Yeah. You know what? Now it sticks. Well, that's the legend of Ace McGann, I guess. Uh, So, I mean, it just feels like the lesson to be learned is that ace is a strong name and that uh, anyone who earns the nickname of ace is a certified killer. Now, Jay, I think like um, the big question though is about the name. Is is the name Ace Potable? I think that is Daniel Potable.
This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. If you're as obsessed with basketball as I am, then you know there's no better time of year than the NBA playoffs. Hey guys, this is JJ Redick. Twice a week, I'm cooking up something special for basketball junkies on my podcast, The Old Man and the Three. I bring on guests in all stages of their careers to talk about the league and share stories you won't hear anywhere else, like Devin Booker on why he talks so much trash, or Paulo Bencaro on his shooting workouts with Kevin Durant, Ray Allen's epic free throw competitions with LeBron when they were teammates in Miami. But it's not just about the player interviews. Every Monday, I break down the top three things happening around the NBA without the outlandish takes. Often joined by masterminds of the game like Tim Legler, we dive deep into topics like rookie reports, trade breakdowns, and why is meme mugging now a tech? The Old Man of the Three is the only companion podcast you'll need during the playoffs this year. Be sure to listen to The Old Man of the Three ad-free on Wondery Plus or wherever you get your podcasts. We now welcome to the podcast from Bleacher Report and the author of the new book, Built to Lose, How the NBA's Tanking Era Changed the League Forever, the great Jake Fisher. Jake, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, man. It's always uh, always good to jump on with the Jam Packers. So it's an honor to be here, and I appreciate you giving me the time, man. Of course. Now, most people uh, might not know, but I actually met Jake Fisher when you were, what, an undergrad at Northeastern University? Probably my freshman year, honestly. Yeah, it was uh, with, a, with, a little, with a little Slam Magazine credential around my neck back in the day. See, Jake is what we call a young go-hard. He's uh, just <laughs> younger than you, and he works harder than you, and he's going to create uh, better work than you. And now you've written an entire book. That is absolutely insane. Um, <laughs> what prompted you to make that decision? That's just a wild choice to be like, what are you, 25? I'm going to write a book? Um, well, actually, so yeah, I'm 27. But yeah, I was 25 when I started writing it. Yeah, or working on it. Um you know, that introduction you gave was very kind. And for those reasons, you know, I definitely um, wanted to wrap my arms around something that wasn't, you know, when, when people start off in this business, it's a competitive industry and, and you're writing all the time trying to, you know, get that next job or get, get yourself on that next platform. And this was something that I wanted to kind of wrap my arms around just to be a project that was mine. And was something that I wanted to work on earnestly and like thoroughly and, and do and do it well, you know? And so there aren't many opportunities to just like call up 300 people around the NBA and talk to them about the same topic, unless it's a book. So it just kind of materialized and, you know, being in Boston with you during that time period and being from Philly and covering the Sixers for Liberty Ballers, like I felt like I was in the, the eye of the tanking hurricane, if you will, like those Sixers Celtics games, people remember were like 
Super Bowls of losing, right? So it kind of, the book just kind of felt like a way to cap off all the reporting I've done the first eight years of my career. Now, did you have the idea of like, I want to write a book and it, it happened to turn into a book about tanking or you were like, this is the thing. Tanking is so obviously uh, like the era has changed. Like, this is what I need to write about. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've wanted to write books for a while, fiction, nonfiction, you name it. So, you know, I, I would go into, I'm in Boston right now on vacation. I went to Trident uh, Booksellers for, for breakfast this morning when I was in school. I went to Northeastern. That was like one of my favorite spots. Every time I walked into Trident or the library or any bookstore, I always felt like, you know, something's missing from here. Not to be too corny, but felt like there was... You know, I wanted to get something with my name on that shelf, not for the Eagle play, but something, you know, I wanted to work on and, and, and share with the world, you know? So it, I definitely thought it was going to originally just be a Philly book. Um, but when you really peel back the layers, like they're so connected, right? Like the Sixers and the Magic um, and the Lakers were all tied together by that big Andrew Bynum, Dwight Howard trade, right? And Philly and Boston clashed in that 2012 semifinals with Game Seven, where Rondo hits those threes, um, and you know the, the Celtics trade KG and Paul Pierce the same night in 2013 that uh, Sam Hinkie traded Drew Holiday, and also all these analytical guys stem from the Celtics. Daryl Morey, you know, is kind of a descendant from Danny Ainge, and Sam Hinkie comes from Daryl. So, like when you really peel back the layers, and, and, and in a book when you want to make that. 5th, 10th, 11th, 15th extra call, the story just kind of ended up stretching its tentacles into all these different organizations. Yeah, it feels impossible to like just tell a story about Hinky when you just mentioned all the different factors uh, that you brought up. Now, yeah. obviously, when you talk about tanking, like the Sixers, the process is the most obvious like example that comes to mind. When you're talking about the tanking era, does that start the day Hinky gets hired? How do you define like when... Because like the the point of tanking is to get superstars, but in my opinion, might be a little bold. Superstars have been pretty important uh, throughout the history of the league. When yeah. did it become like? When did like the tanking era officially start? Uh, according to to you, I guess the expert on tanking. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the tanking era, from my perspective, is 2012 to 2016 because you know that's when when the Thunder made the finals, you know, everyone obviously saw the Thunder tank and draft KD, Russ, and Harden three straight years. They get to the finals in only three years in 2012. And who'd they play? The Miami Heat. And the Miami Heat were running the league, obviously, with Wade, LeBron, and Bosh, who were all picked in the top five of the 2003 draft. And you spin it forward as Rob Hennigan then gets poached from Orlando. And Sam Hinkie then joins – because Rob Hennigan went to Orlando a whole year before Hinkie goes to Philly – Ryan McDonough leaves Boston to go to Phoenix. Pete Delsonner retired in Sacramento. David Griffin comes to power in Cleveland. You know, all these analytical executives, like you said, you know, throughout history, superstars win championships. But the analytics really suggested that those superstars are most commonly found in the top five of the draft. And the 2014 draft with Andrew Wiggins and Jabari Parker and Joel Embiid was considered to be the best draft since 2003 and all these analytical minded folks all thought, you know, we're not going to beat Miami anyway. So let's take a couple years. I mean, even look at Boston, Boston was like, Shh, we can't get past these guys anymore. You know, we might as well bottom out, really gamble our odds here at the 2014 class. You know, Wiggins was considered to be the next LeBron. Jabari was the next Carmelo and Bede was the next Hakeem. Obviously he's worked out, but you go down the list and there's Julius Randle and Marcus Smart and Dante Exum and Aaron Gordon, that was considered a seven-player draft 
that had, you know, at the time they were considered to be seven franchise changing talents. And that's why I think this really all came to a head with teams strategizing from two years out to get to that 2014 class. And then obviously when you do tank, it's not just bottoming out and getting that guy. It's then the real, the real process begins of trying to build that back into a postseason contender. Um, and so I think, you know, 2016 kind of had the ramifications of, of these strategies and the Jenga blocks being pulled from all these towers um, from that 2014 class. And it really comes to a head in 2017 where we finally have a lottery reform that got passed, which we're now seeing where, you know, the, the worst team no longer has a 25% chance at the number one pick. That's been the flattening of the odds and so on and so forth. Do you think like the Sixers were successful in the process or like, I mean, I can clown Ben Simmons all day for not shooting and like all those things, but they did get all those picks. They had a chance to, uh, they drafted Ben Simmons. They got Joel Embiid. They had a chance to draft Jason Tatum, but they messed that up. Like uh, making the right pick is uh, obviously, and like talent evaluation is a huge part of this, but you got to give Hinky credit for putting his team in the uh, position to take those cracks. And so would you say the Sixers are were the like the the best tankers or the best uh, of the tanking era? Like who? What team do you think did it uh, the yeah. best? Um, I guess they, you have to evaluate that in terms of who put themselves in the best position to take the most amount of picks, and then after Before. that, it's like who made the right picks and who eventually selected like I because it's it's two different processes for sure. And you know, I, I I call the book an anecdotal history of a bunch of different case studies of the same abstract where you know Philly. They were, they were the middling team, right? They were a seven and eight seed for years. And Hinky had to kind of make a really aggressive move trading Drew to kind of recoup and restock the, the cupboard of assets versus, you know, Boston started off as a real contender. Trading KG and Paul Pierce away was, you know, a real advantage of the Celtics. Obviously, they got that massive haul from Brooklyn that turned into Tatum and Brown, right? But on the flip side, you know, the Lakers, they don't trade Kobe and probably – you know, to a fault. Like the Lakers were the worst team in the league during that five-year <laughs> stretch. They absolutely were. And then you have Orlando. You know, they, they move on from the superstar who makes the trade request with Dwight. The Kings, they're an example being that they're the team that doesn't tank. They don't tank really well enough. They're, they're, they're constantly, you know, changing executives and changing the head coach and, and all this friction within the franchise doesn't allow them to have that uniform direction where – you know, you actually do stick to a plan, do stick to a strategy, which, you know, using that, you know, bringing it back to Philly, I think it's hard to really characterize Hinky's version. And, and, and if Hinky was successful, obviously, because the rug got pulled out from him in 2016 and he wasn't able to finish it. But I really do think that the process was successful in the sense that the goal only was to draft, to, to, to take a lot of shots and a lot of top picks and hopefully create a team that would be a contender year after year after year. Because you can't just say, I'm going to win the title this year. That's for, Look at these playoffs, right? Like so many injuries pop up. There's other luck involved with, you know, people having infighting in, in locker rooms and whatever. Like there's so many variables you can't control. I think the goal is just to stack a team with as much talent and staying power as you can that hopefully the luck breaks your way, which honestly – I think that's why the Sixers were successful, but I also think that's why Boston had the best rebuild of any of these teams being that they made three out of five conference finals before this thing's kind of crumbled a bit here and they've fallen down and people have laughed at them and they've still got Tatum and Brown and Marcus Smart and other options here. And I think, you know, obviously there's been a lot of stuff behind the scenes with losing Kyrie 
and Gordon Hayward and you know Al Horford's obviously come back now and, and the messaging has been that he's looking forward to coming back there but of course you know he wasn't too thrilled with the Celtics franchise when he walked out the door so clearly there's some stuff you know behind the scenes after they built it back up they struggled with but to turn a team from one of the worst teams in the league in 2014 to making that shrewd move for Isaiah Thomas and then getting back into the postseason after one year and then stockpiling guys and adding, you know, the Jay Crowder addition with the Rondo deal and, and, and building up organically with the, with free agents with Kyrie and Hayward, like Boston did the damn thing pretty damn well. Yeah. I think the thing that makes the Celtics different is that they were able to use the nets to tank basically. Like they could still have a, organizational like the the people talk about the process in Philly I think it did really take a hit on the organization just to intentionally lose that much and I think there's like a psychological thing just involved of like being part of an organization that's trying to lose you mentioned all the other teams yeah. where the magic have really not had that much success the kings have not had uh, that much success like eventually hanky got fired because it was just like not really uh palatable for I guess ownership anymore the Celtics had Kind of, and Danny Ainge, one of the things that he did so well was he got those picks, but was able to kind of maintain, uh, I guess, a winning culture. I mean, the yeah. Brad, early Brad Stevens teams, the trades for Isaiah Thomas and like Jay Crowder, those teams wildly overperformed. And you could argue that like they made that run to the playoffs where they became the eight seed and got absolutely worked by the Cavs in the first round. Like that hey, probably they were the seven seed. They were the seven seed that year. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry that they could have been uh, had a lottery pick that year instead of, uh, you know, I don't know how much value they got from just getting swept in the first round, but they were able to kind of develop these young guys and be in the position they are now while still yeah. getting uh, stars and having, like I guess, a culture of winning. It's just You're interesting right. that like you have to like if you're going to tank, you have to kind of go through. Uh, not many teams just have a bunch of other picks. I mean, you look at the Thunder yeah. now, they have a crazy amount of picks. Um, they're both tied to their own performance, but then um, just from all the different picks Presti has collected, would you, you say the tanking era is over, I guess, with the lottery <laughs> change, but, I mean, the Thunder sat down Al Horford. They sat down Shea last year. Yeah. I mean, they kind of got screwed this year with only ended up with the sixth pick. I wouldn't expect them to, if Kemba Walker does stay with them, to play. I, like, even though lottery reform has changed kind of the odds, I think you're still – still seeing that the tanky, like there's still incentive to tank in this league and we're still seeing it in sure. the thunder are the best case. Tanking is alive and well. I, I just think, you know, the tanking era, if you will, it was such a hot button topic. Right. And that's, that's why Hinky got pushed out. And, you know, the league was very upset and, and all the rival teams were really upset that they were a hot button topic. And that 15, 16, Sixers team that was, you know, almost the worst team ever. They were stealing headlines from the Warriors who literally were the best team ever. And that was something that the league was, was furious about. And when that Sixers team came into town, you know, owners really, really complained about how ticket sales and gate revenue was just dropping whenever Philly came up on the schedule. Sure. What OKC and Houston and Detroit and Orlando did this year, it's more audacious than anything Sam ever did. They didn't send or Sam Hinkie. The, the, the Hanky Sixers, they never sent veteran players home for half the season, but now it's not really as much of an issue anymore. People don't really talk about it too much. And I think it's because the league, when they passed lottery reform, they kind of wiped their hands and was like, look, we fixed it. We solved tanking. And they just kind of forgot it and moved on. And, and now they're focusing on building up the play-in tournament and the mid-season tournament. Um, but 
you know, the Celtics, like you mentioned, having that stockpile of picks as well, you know, when the, the Timberwolves get the, get the number one pick in 15 and Philly gets it in 16 and that next pick that became one that ultimately they traded down for Fultz, that was three straight years of the worst team in the league getting that number one pick. That also played a big factor in forcing lottery reform that very summer. Even though it, was, it happened in three years, the, the last team before that group to win the number one pick was 2004 with Dwight Howard in Orlando. So, sure, luck, whatever, random frequencies, sequences, whatever. But those three straight teams, Boston, you know, with, with the Nets pick included, um, really put a scare in the league as well, thinking, like, we got to, you know, force teams away from doing this. But like we mentioned, it's not happening. Teams are still playing the lottery. Oh, yeah. It's just kind of shifted where now some teams are going for, like, the play-in tournament, which – I don't know if you ask the Washington Wizards right now, or I'm trying to know who they who they beat. I can't even remember who was the nine and ten seed. The Pacers or Charlotte? Yeah. I'm guessing they would probably uh, have rather tanked and had a lower uh, or a higher draft pick in this year's draft. But it's just like it's interesting because you would think the issues of like owners complaining that. Um, like no one wants to come see the Thunder play when they're in town or no one wants to come see the Magic yeah. play. That still exists. Like, I don't well, know here's one how thing. big a Lou here's Dork one, fan you are. Here's one but. thing about this year. No fans in the stands, right? There was no opportunity to complain about it. And in this COVID-riddled season, I think that you know, it's, gotten, it's gotten overlooked as to why, you know, no one really cared too much about these teams. I mean, again, what, what OKC did, I think, of anybody, even Houston with John Wall, like just sitting John Wall on the bench for half the year and handing the keys to Kevin Porter Jr. Like egregious, egregious tanking. But no one really was paying attention because there weren't fans going to the stadium anyway. It's pretty wild. And I like I guess I don't really blame Sam Presti for what he's done or like or any of these GMs for tanking, because have you as you note in your book, it is the best strategy to get the most amount of swings. Like if I'm playing 2k and i'm in career mode or gm mode like that's i'm trying to do the exact same thing um but i guess it's kind of like the set uh for the thunder to do that this year with the new lottery odds they kind of got screwed with the sixth pick and what i'm not a big draft guy you probably know better than me like yeah. i think this is like a what four or five uh player draft is that like gonna disincentivize that to maybe like maybe the thunder try to win some games next year I don't know. The Thunder are in a really interesting position where, you know, everyone around the league even has kind of laughed at Boston where they never use these picks to get Anthony Davis or trade for Kawhi. The Thunder are going to be in a similar spot where you can't draft 17 guys in three years and have them all on your roster. That doesn't work. And also, you know, Shea Gildas-Alexander is a borderline all-star right now. Like, like how does his timeline match up with all this? I, I really do think, they're in a weird spot where they're probably not going to get a guy at six. I mean, everyone's saying this is a five-player draft. You talk to some scouts and some league executives, they'll call it a six-player draft with Scotty Barnes from Florida State. Um, I talked to one scout who said he'd take Scotty Barnes number one, which, you know, is definitely not uh, in the popular opinion. But, you know, someone said that to me works professionally in basketball. So I, th I, I would kind of consider it a six-player draft. But I don't know if, you know, getting the sixth player in, in the sixth player draft is, is the piece that pushes you towards, you know, trying to get back to it. But the Thunder had a lot of talent last year before Shea Gildas hurt his ankle and they were right in the, the, the picture of that playing tournament. So it'll be curious to see where they go the next year, but 
I think, you know, I, I went to Sam Presti's, um, went to quote unquote his end of season Zoom press conference. And, and, you know, he spoke for a half hour before he took any questions, just talking about the diligence needed. And, and, and he just recognized. monologued. He just gave up a, a monologue. half hour monologue. That's wild. And, and it was a masterclass in public relations. And I'm not saying that, which, you know, you can use that expression to kind of throw shade at people, whatever. Do and, and being clear in, in the strategy involved. That's what Hinky didn't do. And that's why I, I think that was ultimately his downfall with Philadelphia. And that's why I think the Thunder do have a bit more rope here than most, being that they're they're so open about what they're trying to do because they did it before, right? Like we talked about with KD, Russ, and Harden. So that's why I think the Thunder are such an outlier in this current present day situation. That's they're just they're so open and, and transparent about the strategy that they're that they're trying to uh, to exact here. The thing that's interesting to me is that even when you do tank. And even when you do get the player, like we talk about the Pelicans, they got the guy. Zion is like generational talent. Yep. Has it really changed that much for their franchise? Or are people like still talking about like what's when Zion going to leave? And so yeah. like tanking is only one portion of the kind of the team building. And like even if the Thunder got a generational guy, I don't, it's still going to be – and they have to hit on all of these picks to like – because no one – no free agent really wants to go – to the Thunder, they maybe have to like can use all those picks to work a trade, but they're still like you can get that foundational guy as we see in New Orleans, but there's still so yeah. much that goes into building a team where David Griffin is under tremendous pressure right now to oh yeah figure something out. Like they brought in Stan Van Gundy, that clearly didn't work out year one, and mm -hmm. I'm not really sure what he does, uh, how he pivots out of that because he has all this pressure to keep Zion happy. It's yeah. just it's pretty wild, like you can get that superstar. It guarantees you kind of, well, I guess in the Pelicans case, it doesn't guarantee you the playoffs, but like the Mavericks, yeah. like Luca carries them to the thing, but there's still so much pressure for these small market teams to kind of uh, build a team around them. And that's where like the rest of like being a talented GM is. I just don't know what the small market does in terms of like, because how is New Orleans or Memphis or I guess even the Mavericks at this point going to attract the guys to kind of put around those generational talents? Yeah, and, and that's, you know, a big part of the book as well. I, mean, I talked to 300 people, like I said at the top, for this to really find, you know, true inside stories from locker rooms on a team plane, in war rooms, what have you. And you know, what I really think the book is, it's a, it's a real peel back the curtain, inside look of how the NBA is a business and a marketplace and an ecosystem. And all those types of people we talked about just now, they're all independent actors in this complicated, you know, workplace, right? Where everyone's got their own agenda and the executive is trying to keep convincing the owner that he's the guy to run the basketball operation, right? And the executive's got to hire the coach to make him look good and make his players that he assembled, you know, optimized and in the best position to be successful. And each of those players, they're trying to get as good as they can to get paid. So that right there, like, it's not just so simple as we draft these guys all together and then we make the playoffs. Like Orlando, Rob Hennigan, I think, and from people from talking to people around that, that team in that time period, you know, it seemed like the Magic had a bit of hubris. Like the Thunder just drafted KD, Russ, and Harden, and they made the finals three years later. And you see the the Magic then take Victor Oladipo in 2013. And they trade for Tobias Harris. And the very next year in the draft, they take Alfred Payton, another guard who has shooting questions and positional questions. And then Aaron Gordon, who, you know, also same things with Tobias Harris, where 
you know, you, you can't really just stockpile all these athletes together and just kind of hope it mishmashes together and they become, you know, a playoff thing. It takes culture and nurturing and development. And that's not easy because again, of all those different agendas, like we talked about, and you know, look at, you look at a team like the Atlanta Hawks, which happened uh, later on and not in the time period of my book, but you know, they tank for Trey Young and then they surround him with complimentary wing pieces in their following draft and they trade for Clint Capella. And then this year the pressure's on to turn this thing actually into a playoff team when they make pretty strategic moves in free agency going after Bogdanovich and Gallo and Rondo and turn Rondo into Lou Williams. Like that to me is, is a really great example of how you can do this organically um, and, and kind of build it piece by piece. And, you know, it, it really is difficult when you're getting pressure though, from your owner to, you know, make moves to push that timeline or you know, your executive's contract is up. He only has got one year left and he's really trying to, you know, make some big swing to convince the owner, keep me like, all those factors are real and it's it sometimes, you know, that they muddy the waters from a team trying to, to get to the top. Yeah. And it feels like the Hawks are a fascinating situation because they made all those moves and it really didn't work to start the year. And then they mm-hmm. fired Lloyd Pierce, who's like reportedly just like the nicest guy and one of the best people uh, around the league. Um, but for some reason, the evil villain Trey Young did not uh, vibe with him. Uh, but it seems like, like, Nate McMillan really turned it around and they've been an amazing team like and have gone way farther in the playoffs than I think anyone anticipated and have with Giannis yeah. being hurt a legitimate chance at the finals but it just like shows you how much I guess organizational culture or and like the impact of coaching has on these guys and so I'm curious and I think uh, I know you gotta get out of here soon so I'll get you out of here on this like what you think yeah. um of the Celtics doing a, a kind of a crazy thing that doesn't really happen in turning their head coach into their head of basketball ops and then bringing in Ime yeah. uh, Udoka and just like, I like personally, because I'm incredibly biased and a Celtics fan <laughs> that like, and I'm a, a big fan of Brad Stevens. Like, I think he's a smart guy and is going to make it work. Um, but I do think there was like a simultaneously a need for kind of a culture change a need for a fresh perspective. But I think there's benefits in that they have a kind of maintained a sense of culture um, yeah. as they go on to the next, uh, I guess, administration? Yeah, I think to, to bring this back to the beginning of your question, like I think a big issue that Lloyd Pierce faced in Atlanta was the same issue that Brett Brown ultimately faced in Philadelphia was that, that nurturing, that, 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 that teaching, that growing uh, concept. Like at a certain point, you got to be able to hold your guys accountable and put your foot down. And I think what Brad did so successfully in Boston, because he obviously got hired you know, right around the same time Brett Brown did, you know, he really did an excellent job at coming at these guys and being like, look, I'm helping you make money in this league and I'm helping you become a better player in our team structure. And therefore, like Evan Turner, I'm going to bring you in on a minimum deal and you're going to get a $74 million contract if you listen to me here, right? And I think, you know, his strategy and how he obsessed over optimizing every single player in their, in their skill set, that there's so many coaches who are like, this is my formula, this is my – process this is my you know playbook i'm just spinning you guys into that it's not what brad did he always sought to just maximize each individual guy's skill sets and he also taught every single guy all five positions that way they were all just interchangeable and he would run them ragged in, in practice to to get them to know every every single possible situation so when they're on the road in miami down two with 1.9 seconds left and you throw that lob play 
all the way to the right corner for Jeff Green's game-winning three. Like, all those guys knew exactly what to do. You spin that forward to where he's at now. I mean, for all the reporting I've done and conversations I've had around the league, it sounds like Brad really just was burnt out from the bubble and from the constant pressure of now we're in a player's league where these superstars have say-so and, and, and they want it and they, they need it. They crave it because they – I think tanking played a big factor in, rec- in having these guys recognize, like, you're going to punt two, three years just to get me? Like, hell yeah, I'm going to voice my opinion on what we got to do um, to get here. And, and I think – you know, that's not something that, that Brad really thrived in, like we talked about five seconds ago. He was he was a part – he really thrived in, in really setting the tone culturally. But with that and with his ability to, to recognize what players' strengths are individually, I think it's going to translate super well to his role at the top of, uh, of you know, the, the basketball operations. And I think Ime Doka was an excellent hire from everything I've heard. I, mean, I, I wrote a story about him working out with this guy, Mike Moser, who's a close friend of his. Um, from Oregon, never made the league, but kind of like a big brother type former player guy who I think also like he kind of previewed in his uh, intro presser, like isn't afraid to beat up on his younger brothers a little bit every now and then. I think that's what it's a delicate balance of kind of relating to these guys, but also holding them accountable, which is why Ty Lue's been so successful. Um, so kudos to Brad and elevating him. And I, I know that from things I've heard behind the scenes, like Ime wanted that job too. So they've got a guy in place who isn't just taking, you know, the first head coaching opportunity he has. Like that's the job that he wanted. He was involved in Orlando. He wanted Boston. Um, moving forward, like it's all, it's all going to be about how they flush out that staff around him. Um, you know, obviously Gavin Stoudemire has been floated out there. I've heard Aaron Miles from Golden State got permission to interview um, with Boston. Um, but the front office, stuff is really in question you know there's definitely starting to be a lot of rumors if you know that continuity that's been there for a while is going to continue and there was a lot of talk behind the scenes when brad first got elevated that it was kind of going to be like he was going to be the nominal leader but Zaram was going to run the show and that's not how it sounds right now it really sounds like this is brad's show he's the guy calling the shots and you know the long mainstays of that front office might not even be there moving forward so um it's obviously a clean slate and you know, maybe that is something that will help them kind of course correct and really start to, you know, now we're, this is officially the Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown era. It's not, you know, Marcus Smart and Al Horford and all these guys. And, oh, and now we're just bringing on Tatum and Brown into that fold. So it seems like, yeah, maybe, maybe they are kind of overdue for a fresh start here. I'm curious to see where, you know, the next steps end up, uh, end up unfolding. Yeah, now is the window and all the benefits from basically using the Nets to tank. Uh, they basically had these like multiple swings at it with bringing in Kyrie and Hayward. And let me tell you, it didn't work out, but it was a it was an interesting uh, process. And it basically allowed them to have this winning culture and then basically uh, reap all the benefits from the tanking and moving forward. Jake Fisher from Bleacher Report, very much appreciate you uh, coming on the pod. Yeah, man. Everyone go out and buy his book, Built to Lose, How the NBA's Tanking Era Changed the League Forever. Uh, Seems like a fascinating book where he talked to literally everyone (laughs) in the league. He's a young go-hard, so you know it's a great book, and you know he talked to everyone. uh, And really appreciate you coming on, and everyone go buy the book. Yeah, you can get it at Amazon, bookshop.org. If you want to support a local bookseller, Barnes & Noble, my publisher, Triumph Books. And I've got a deal with La Terrain Watches, L-A-T-O-U-R-A-I-N-E, promo code Built to Lose. You get a free book with any watch purchase. So I appreciate you having me on. Appreciate you guys listening. I appreciate any support and uh, picking up a copy. Thanks so much, Jake.
Thank you, man. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.